Woof. Woof, woof. All right. Why don't we kick off? Yeah, let's go. What, 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 get, do, you want to, what do you want to do this, this round? Let's see if we can you, come up with something spicy. You're going to clear your throat? <laughs> All right. Let's get ready. What is up, everybody? I'm Jason Trost, the host of Bidding in... There you go. Okay. <laughs> Betting a business podcast, man. What is up, everybody? I'm Jason Trost, the host of Business of Betting podcast. So I've reinvited Quentin to jump on the podcast. Uh, like I said last time, Quentin is a wealth of knowledge. Been around this industry forever. He knows so much about it, and uh, you know, even as two insiders, like I always feel like I walk away learning something when I'm talking to him. And one of the things I, I, that kind of stuck with me after the end of the last podcast was that, you know, we spend a lot of time in his bio and his history and it's so interesting, but I think there's so much more to get uh, from a conversation with Quentin. So what I wanted to try in today's podcast was to debate some topics and kick some stuff around. So, well, first of all, welcome to the podcast. I assume you're still in Las Vegas. Is that, is that the case? Yep, yep. Background has not changed. Still in Vegas. And how are you doing with all the fame after the uh, the the previous podcast went live? You know, are you getting mobbed? Are are, are media inquiries coming in left, right, and center? <laughs> they are. We've increased security around the yeah. perimeter. Yeah. So <laughs> I recommend a, a good PR person. So, um, well, let's kick off. Uh, one of the things that you mentioned last time was micro betting, and and we were more focused on your bio and your background, and and we didn't get into that too much. Um, so micro betting, you know, the what's funny is like that's the first time I've actually heard that term. I think I can guess what it means, but why don't you talk a little bit more about micro betting and why it feels feels a need in the marketplace? Yeah, look, I, I, I should have, I should have, I probably still could file a trademark on that, right? So it was basically like, it quite simply is, is like how finite of a betting market can we get to at scale? Are you talking about like I can bet two pennies on, on something, like two cents? <clears throat> no, no, not, not, not the dollar size. It's the, uh, the, the, the event, right? So speed of the, speed of the pitch. What type of pitch? Uh, okay. Right? So like... So like if we can reduce uh, if we can reduce a real world or I guess even a digital world event to the simplest thing possible or the most finite statistic possible, and then put a bet on that. And then when you have in the real world physics plus technology, and we're trying to in microseconds be able to say, you know. Uh, well, well in, in anyways, what's the next app back going to be is a lot harder than wh who's going to win the game. So would an example be like, are the Patriots going to get a first down? Or the, is this field goal going to go in? Is it that kind of idea? Yeah. Yep. 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 As, yeah, uh, as okay. micro of an event as possible. So, uh, okay. So to me, when I hear micro betting, I think of like small betting amounts. I would, I would call that more like uh, esoteric props or something or more... Like, yeah, look, game go, betting opportunities. Go, fair enough. If you go far enough back in industry lingo, we used to, to use micro to refer to the size of the bet. So a micro bet would be like a penny bet, a dime bet, in the true sense of 0 0.10 dime bet, quarter bet. Anything less than like a nominal size bet would be called a micro bet, right? In this case, the parlance is, is you know, I guess micro event. 
maybe it's more so the micro bet. It's a micro event. There, and I like delivering that, that. Yeah, delivering that on scale with speed in real time and being able to, through the technology stack, as you know, deliver those markets and then take the bet. So, you know, you and I have both spent a lot of time trying to think about where this industry is going to go. Like, like the core betting apparatus has been the same for hundreds of years. You know, you have a game, people bet on it. Uh, the mechanism is a binary option. People trade money and the ratio of the money is the odds and, and the winner gets the pot. It's kind of the same mechanism. Do you think a lot of these things like micro betting are designed to sort of try to squeeze the lemon a little bit more in the fact that, you know, betting writ large has been commoditized and it's kind of a boring product because the, the base is the same? Or do you think that the future of betting is going to be look a lot different? Like the everyday betting is going to look a lot different than it is today. Look, I, I'm probably in the latter camp or the former camp. <clears throat> you know, sports betting is largely a commodity, right? What, there, there's very little differentiation between product offered. And we talk a lot about in the industry about differentiation, and we're going to deliver this in this great new way. But ultimately, I think I, I agree with you. It's, it's the same stuff all over again. I mean, look, whether you're betting on chariot races or you then started betting on horse races, and now we're betting on sporting events. You know, it's just what is the event that we're betting on? But the content of the event or the type of the markets that exist are still who won the race, um, who, who, you know, chariot race, horse race, et cetera, who won the game. So, you know, until we invent new games to take bets on, so now we're taking a bet on whatever it's going to be, you know, it's, it's still largely a commodity. So then... If this commodity, I agree, if this commodity and this type of product has existed and stayed the same for probably a millennium, then then what happens? So I, I don't see a lot of differentiation coming there. Micro event, micro events is more about expanding the product portfolio. And we'll see how that gets consumer adoption. So a lot of, for, for years, everyone talked about, look how much in-play betting is overseas in Europe, right? Or in the UK or in reverse where you are, right? On the continent. I think that takes a lot into account for the types of games that are predominant favorite games, right? So soccer, cricket, tennis, the pace of those games and the style of that game lends itself to that 2080 split. Some of the US sports, different pace, different speed of the game. And so it's been 80-20. And so what we tried to do with micro events is then capture more of the in-play on scale so we can deliver it for a betting experience. So I, I don't know if we're necessarily changing the landscape and rewriting the world of sports betting, but we are then capturing a broader amount of events that we could take bets on. And are you doing this as a, are you doing this as an operator or did you invest in a company that's trying to do this or what's your, what's your, uh, your skin in the game here? Uh, essentially I got brought in and strategic, advisor with equity stakes got it so you know um bringing 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 products and ideas to market and advising and accelerating companies got it to me the like even though betting is largely the same you know i kind of think of betting like banking you know like all banks do the same functions like the banks you love uh you know you and i were talking about revolut like revenue revolut just does the really the small things so well like sign up is easy sending money is easy looking at what you spend is easy the fx is 
almost free. And so to me, the art of sports betting should be around that, like increasing the user experience, like coming up with exotic bet types to me is a little bit of a, I don't know, fool's errand is the right thing. It's a little bit trying to, um, I don't know, lipstick on a pig is the metaphor that came up, came in my mind, but it's like, it feels like faffing around the edges when most operators are fucking up like their core user experience. I feel like most sports betting experiences are grids with a logo at the top. So why aren't sports betting companies like really leading into like top level customer service, top level user experience, top level, you know, payments and betting and all these kinds of things and, and not trying to add exotic betting types. What's your response to that? I, I mean, I guess I would ask, like, why are there so few systems in the world? Sports in betting area? systems. Sports betting and online gambling systems. Of, like, all the industries in the world, why is the supply so small? How many, and, how many do you think there are? Like, tens? Um, well, I mean, I'd probably break up regulated and un regulated uh -huh. pre-regulated markets and i would say like in the regulated markets 20 15 20 okay i mean look it it, it is the, the supply is so limited that if you're a new supplier you can in two years or less ramp yourself into a position of market dominance think about that in the early stages of like the u.s opening yeah. there were no systems here and the system's uh, my strategy checkbox list that I, I put on there just because they were in the news or they happened to be at SPC over in London was like very small. Like, yeah, okay, I know they're a player. I know they target these markets. There's no way they're ever going to come into the U.S., but I'll put them on the list just to have them on my radar. There's probably three of us on the supply side that will actually end up competing here. And then in reality, you find someone who has a simpler deployment, a simpler commercial model, and you just immediately ramp inside of inside these markets but i think of the regulated markets we're talking like in the tens mm -hmm. i think of the unregulated space there's probably quite a few more i would say based on the size of the rest of the world you have to do at least some multiple of that and say there's probably you know somewhere between 50 and 100 other systems sitting out there somewhere mm -hmm. but um i mean to your point you know delivery well here's a real good question i would put it back to you why is the why are the systems in the UK and the EU not necessarily in my mind much more simpler or cleaner or faster than the ones in the US? And, and, and obviously some of those are the same systems, but but like um, you know, I would say like on the one hand it's because in the US the regulated market here creates a longer time to develop new product and so to develop new interfaces, so that gets just pushed down your roadmap. But like, why has it not innovated on the, on the other side of the pond to something so simple? My, my sense of that, the answer to that question is the barriers to entry, uh, perceived and real, are so high. And, and a lot of them are perceived, but a lot of them are very real. That entrepreneurs just really don't get in this space. Like, there are so few startups competing um, in this space, I think. I think that's part of it. I also think, just to kind of get to a version 1.0, like... When I founded uh, my company, it was a lot easier to kind of get into the game. You know, I feel like I hit the window at the right time where, you know, we could be three guys in a garage and kind of build a working sports book. I feel like those days yeah. are, it's much more complicated now because of all the yep. regulation and all that kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, even when I founded uh, 
you know, when I founded my company, uh, there was a lot of negative headwinds about getting into the space. I mean, we're trying to make an exchange like Betfair, more or less anybody I talked to said, you have no chance to succeed. So there's all these headwinds of, you know, um, uh, like the status quo is the status quo. I think um, to a vast oversimplification, but in general, innovation is less valued in Europe. They're more traditionalists than Americans. And so they, they're, they're much more up for try, not trying new things uh, than Americans are. I think that's part of it. I, and I also think that just like, it's just such a complicated space, you know, in order for me to launch, um, like, let's say I wanted to create WhatsApp, you know, I, you know, I could get 10 guys in a garage and launch WhatsApp globally, you know, a WhatsApp competitor, I could launch sure. it tomorrow and be in all the app stores tomorrow. You know, I think Smarkets is only in three app stores, at least on the, um, forget if it's Android. Or, I think uh, Google is much more restrictive than the, the app store. But in Google, Google only allows our app in three countries, even if we have a license in some cases. Like it's, it's crazy. So I think it's a combination of, uh, you know, high barriers to entry. A lot of entrepreneurs just see the regulation and like, no thanks. And also the industry is not exactly welcoming to, to new blood. I think that's, that's one half of the equation. I think the other half of the equation is in most of the cases, I would say all sports books are kind of built from like terrestrial retail based legacy companies. Very few, like, I think the only digital only one I can think of is Betfair off the top. Of, I'm sure that there, there's others, but you know, Bet365 came from a, a group of book of bookshops, Betfred, Ladbrokes, William Hill, Patty Power. They all started as book as physical bookmakers. And, you know, we all know from retail, if you can think of your favorite retail companies, generally speaking, they have really crappy online experiences. You know, like the DNA of a company really matters. And if you have a retail DNA and try to sell t-shirts or you're trying to sell shoes, that ability to make shoes, get them in physical stores and sell them is a much different DNA to building a, a e-commerce experience that gets people to buy and shop online. So I think today, uh, still, most of the European companies do not have the right DNA to be B2C technology companies because of this sort of this hangover legacy of the DNA of being physical shops and, and the barriers to entry are really high. Anyway, that's my theory. What do you think? That's super interesting. That's super interesting. Like so, I I think I think it I think it essentially answers the same question in the U.S. Right. So like I'm already up and running. I have my tech stack. It may not be my favorite, but it's driving revenue. I'm acquiring customers. I'm retaining customers. How much will changing my user interface move the needle? Mm. So if you go back like whatever it was four years ago for the U.S. opening, right? People are like, I must have a unique user interface. How many of those right now are like unique? Mm. Like how many are not like a menu or if you're looking at the other way of the camera, a menu, you got your box in the middle, which is two thirds. And then you have your ticket on the other side, right? So you can see what you're betting on. And then on this side, you can say, make it a parlay, make it a this, make it a that, right? W what else is different besides that? And, and then everyone was looking at, like, let me look at Bet365 and see how they've done it because they do it the best, obviously. So that must be the way to do it. So, look, I, I, think, I think there's a lot of rationale and around things staying the same. Do I think it's the best way to deliver things? No. I think there's a new group of people who will be trying to tackle and target exactly this problem of, like, the long-term strategy, the next generation. Yeah, they're going to bet, but do they really want to bet on – 
three Excel spreadsheets effectively on a HTML web page? I don't think so. Mm. So I don't think micro events necessarily changes the user experience. I think what we're doing is we're expanding the menu. Up until now on US sports, you go and the menu was effectively your standard betting plus uh, prop bets. And I think this goes beyond that in terms of a, from a technology point of view, leveraging machine learning and AI. And then I'll stop on this topic. We can switch up else, but we were leveraging new machine learning and AI to develop a bottom-up approach, very, very finite micro events, expanding that menu offering. So it's no longer just like cheese pizza, pepperoni pizza. By the way, here's like 30 other things you can do. And when you do that, we've just exponentially grown the amount of the menu. And then on the same time, we've also exponentially grown the speed and velocity with which people can bet during a game. So we're, we're expanding the menu and then delivering a product that allows people to order more of the menu more often, more frequently. That's, that's different. And you can deliver that within the constraints of the existing stack without having to do an entire rework to change the user experience. Who needs anything besides pepperoni pizza? Like, so I think you just, uh, you know, went against your own business plan there. Um, (laughs) just, (laughs) so, okay. So, I, I like, and, and maybe this is the tech entrepreneur in me. When I look at the when I look at the American expansion of sports betting, um, I you know there's all this money in this space, uh, but there's so few entrepreneurs that are really trying to become innovative uh, operators. I mean, you have Sport Trade and Profit. I know those guys so happy that they're trying to really shake things up. But if you look at like um, what Fanatics is doing, I mean, Fanatics is sort of a classic case of. You know, an Uber successful company, no question, but just thinking that they can like double click, download, in, you know, sportsbook.exe and, and, and be an amazing sportsbook. Like, uh, I know there's a big debate going on right now. Are they going to build or buy? You know, I would say, you know, if I had, a, if I had a bet, uh, and I am a betting man, I would bet that, uh, they, they're going to buy something, uh, and not build it. Um, but you know, if you go down the, the, the list of Disney, um, you know, ESPN is probably going to do a sports book at some point. And, uh, uh, you know, nobody is like saying like, Yahoo hey, will somehow find its way back into the mix. Yeah. But Yahoo's not going to like, exactly. Yahoo used to be, um, you know, such a famous tech company. They're not even going to, you know, none of these guys are going to build their sports book. And it just, for, from my perspective, it just seems so lame it seems so lame that these guys just have a hundred million dollars or whatever, and they're just going to go buy something and there's going to be no love. And then they're, they're just going to do, you know, to use your pizza analogy, it's going to be the same shitty pizza with a different color in the box. And what I really want for this industry, um, what I really want for this industry is some dynamism. I mean, like it's such a, I mean, we're talking sports. I mean, there's very few things that like sports are exciting. You know, they're exciting and all the sports betting is just so lame. And and I think it's largely because you have all these corporate retail dinosaurs that are, you know, trying to make tech decisions and you really need tech tech people, you know, tech men and women really leaning, rolling their sleeves up. And uh, that's why I was, you know, I was quizzing you a little bit last time when you, if you go through all the rigmarole to kind of start a company do all the song and dance to, to build a sports book. And, and, you know, it's very hard. It's a lot of work. Um, you know, why not just go for the gold and, and be an operator? Look, I think that, look, I think, and that's what we're seeing, right? So, uh, 
I think there's this there's this idea that you must own all the tech to be that effective operator. And again, a lot of people have used Bet365 as that operating model, right? Everything in-house, uh, we, own, we own everything, so we do more than everyone else can. I, I look, I think ultimately that is the goal, right? If, if you really want to be in this business, you want to own that direct relationship with the customer. That is actually where the excitement is. You, it could be kind of exciting to be a supplier and be outsourced risk management, but there's a there's a lot of difference between having skin in the game and being the bookmaker and being the operator. Yeah, do I will I ever eventually get back to that point? Yeah, I, I could definitely see that, right? So there's a time and a place for all these things. But you look at this I, even again. I talk about these in stages of evolution right now. Will Finax come in? Fairly confident they will. Do I agree? More likely than not, probably more like you know, eight to one that they'll buy their own stack, I think hundred percent, right? So they're, they're, they're going to, they're going to definitely have to do that. They're going to want to integrate it into this like broader ecosystem. And then that becomes the question, right? So if you build this broader ecosystem and you're going to say, well, my customers need a better user experience, you know, that'll be interesting to see, like, ultimately what happens is people start off with this great plan of differentiation and then almost everyone regresses to the mean. And that experience almost ends up being like 90% the same as the guy next door or the, the girl shop next door. Now, there's some very cool stuff coming out where it's quasi-skill, quasi-fantasy, quasi-sports betting. I think that's a whole separate category of experience than straight sports book and exchange. Um, related, but different. I'm seeing more innovation there like on skill sports prediction challenges that I'm even seeing on the sports betting side right now. Mm. Well, I mean, like, like I said a little bit earlier, I don't think that uh, to me, what I think the industry has missed, if we go back to this Revolut example of like, you know, for years we used banks, you know, we've all had bank accounts and, and, you know, it's, if you, if you try to send a payment, it's, at least in the UK internationally or something like, or even, you know, I have Chase in the US and I have, Lloyd's in the UK and sending an international payment is incredibly complex with those two banks. Like, you know, like it's painful. I think painful. Lloyd's now has a form to do it, but I think you used to have to like call somebody to do an international payment. So, you know, from my perspective, I think the industry really just needs to focus on the basics. Like one of the things that people really lose sight of is the trend, the implicit transaction fee that you pay when you place a sports bet, like in America, it starts at 5.5%. You know, like imagine all the things that you do in your life. If you had a, if you knew you were paying a 5.5% transaction fee, you know, it would just for, for essentially a database transaction, it would, it would just blow your mind. So for what I would like to see in the industry is more like focus on that. Like I would almost argue like back to basics, which is why, why I get a little bit disheartened with, you know, a company like Fanatics, which, or ESPN that has all the money in the world, rather than like adding some love to it and really leaning into the consumer and thinking about it, they're just going to buy, you know, a shitty sports book and, and slap their logo on the top. <laughs> I mean, it's actually, it's, it's, it's a lame, it's an interesting question. No, but I mean, like that, I mean, but, but, I mean, look, the basic, the basic economic theory, the basic business practice there is like, I'm just going to, I'm going to bolt on another user experience, another, another vertical. And the vertical doesn't have to be, a new innovative kind of product. It just has to be the product. I don't have my product set. And, and, and look, and look at customers still tend to be price insensitive 
to minus 110 versus minus 105 versus 101 versus all of that is is like a big question mark. Mm. And it's not like, you know, when you go to place your bet, it says, oh, by the way, your $100 bet is going to cost you, you know, $2.50 or $5. Because uh, it do- it doesn't really work like that. It kind of gets you know disappears into the ether, and you place your bet and look at this. It's unless you're really understanding the math behind it, it's not the case. Yeah. And and look, the most innovation, not the most, but a lot of the innovation people talk about now is simplify the user experience. They don't care about minus one ten. I'm going to create a UI that just says bet a hundred, win a hundred and seventy two, and so it just shows the the input and the output. And that that actually obfuscates even more the the pricing, right? So it is much like banking, right? We like literally it, it takes six days to send a bank transfer, and then someone screws it up, and then it takes you six months to figure it out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you got in a Twitter spat. Could you? Uh, I, I wanted to talk about that a little bit. Can you talk about the Twitter spat? Not Twitter spat. You had an opinion, but talk about that article <laughs> that you commented on and, and got into a conversation about. Well, I, I jumped, I jumped in on a conversation because it was, it was, um, there was an article talking about how it appears that, and it appears as my word, I think the article took the position that sports books are taking advantage of players and voiding and canceling out their bets on all these cases. And the regulators should pound the desk, hold these guys to task. Now I, 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 I jumped in on the conversation because I think it was muddling the waters between like what actually happens behind the scenes on a sports book, what is regulation and what is customer service, right? Regulation is like, there's not this path where like every time a consumer feels like they're wronged at the sports book that you run to the gaming regulators, the path is there. Of course it is, but some of these things are not regulatory matters, right? It's just kind of like, uh, depends on the jurisdiction either in the U S and globally in terms of where you are, but if a sports book operator, uh, fat fingers a line, right. Or they fat fingered the statistical results of settling the bet, like who won the game and they typed it to the wrong team and they settled your bet incorrectly. And so you're like, ah, I won the bet. And then they come back to you and they say, well, I'm going to fix that. Now it was, it was an error. And then the consumer gets pissed off and says, you can't do that. You already gave me the money. Well, this is the process. This is a. Uh, this is not. And I think part of the part of the part of this comes from. I think there's this perception that magically all these systems have all these magical integrations and poof, like you know, and the bet is calculated. Much of this stuff is still very manual in the back end. The sources of data. When talk about a controversial topic, we can talk about data. You know, the sources of data. I still call them dirty data sources. You know, very dirty. You have. You have to, in some ways, clean and normalize the data to get it to a point that is usable. And that's not just like a one-time thing. Data is this constant flowing river into the system and out of the system and back into the system. And there are errors all the time, right? So I think when I see the, the, when I saw the article and the discussion around all these scenarios and the books and the operators should be punished by the regulators. I just had to jump in and said, look, this is, I don't think this is the case guys. There's customer service issues. If the disconnect between the customer service and the risk back in. So you got the risk guy saying, I know this sports better. I'm going to limit how much this guy or girl can bet on this event or on the sport. And the customer service person might not know that. And so they're having this one way conversation with the sports better. It can get lost behind the scenes, right? Because in these, big businesses when you're running a sports book, it's complicated. Mm. So 
and just tried to jump in to say, look, there's probably more than one explanation to this is not something you go to the regulator every single time because, oh, woe is me. I've been damaged and I can't believe that my bet is now my bet is now voided. Or uh, in some cases, there are, in fact, true customer service errors where a young customer service person. And again, I don't know if the broader world understands that most of these customer service people, you know, they've got a very tough job and they're probably learning it on the on the fly. Right. They're mm. probably new. Most of these customer service divisions who are now targeting this growing U.S. market probably started their job less than 12 months ago. So they understand less about sports betting than the sports bettors who's calling in and saying, how come this? How come this? And so, you know, a little bit of grace for, for our customer service teams out there. So I think when you look at all this stuff, you know, the, the conversation around um, this, this, that there is no, there is no magical, I am the sports book. Right? Yeah. I, th- I think a lot of it starts with this perception, uh, which is very ingrained. I think in a lot of customers that the bookmaker is almost against the, the customer, like they're, they're opponents. And I guess, you know, logistically of the financial contract, they're on the opposite f- sides of the financial contract, but it's really not in the interest of the bookmaker to, uh, to cut corners or to treat customers badly. It's, it's really bad for business. Um, and, and I've seen very few examples of bookmakers actually making the wrong decision in terms of these things. But I, I get that in the popular mind, I, I f- it feels to me like a lot of customers think the bookmaker's evil and they're just out to screw the little guy and all that kind of stuff. Um, we, the way I try to think about like uh, if there's a betting error, when I fir- my first job at a university, I was a stock trader and uh, it doesn't happen very often, but NASDAQ and New York Stock Exchange will bust trades. If there's some crazy fat finger event or some weird trading behavior or some weird patterns. And, you know, I'd say it'd happen like once a month, once, you know, once every other month, but there would be some crazy event, like some trader would fall asleep at his desk and hit the enter key a thousand times and would buy a million shares of this small cap stock and (laughs) it would tank it. You know, the NASDAQ, they they have the authority uh, to come in and bust those trades. So the idea that, you know, the trades can't, you know, bad faith trades can't be busted is, is, is wrong. And so we definitely try to uh, have very clear guidelines about when we do it, but we do bust uh, bad faith trades. And I would also say, you know, I, it would be nice to get some punters on the, on the show and we can debate this stuff. But in general, I think, I, th- I think not always, but I think most operators op you know, operate in good faith and are not trying to, to screw customers out now to the point of the, the risk desk is trying to, um, uh, trim the risk per better. I think that is bullshit. I think that's one of the lame uh, side effects of having really bad technology, really bad traders, and really bad algorithms. I think it's a holdover from the days of of guys with clipboards and chalkboards and doing this stuff manually. But I think with with modern technology, algorithms, math, all that kind of stuff, you basically in my opinion, you should be giving the same price and the same amount to everybody. If you're not willing to underwrite this bet for $20,000 to the sharp better, you should not be willing to underwrite that bet $20,000 to the non-sharp better. I think I don't think it's unethical uh, per se, I, but I think it's more just shows how bad bookmakers are. You know, if bookmakers are that skittish and can't price something, like don't forget, you know, we were talking about the implicit transaction fee in a sports bet starts at five and a half percent. So basically the customer, the sharp in this case has to be corrupt more, you know, uh, their edge has to be over 5% to make money. 
right? That is a crazy edge. And if the bookmaker is screwing up by 5%, they should be getting dinged for that. Wait, so, so let me go back. Let me yeah. rewind. So you rewind. don't think the bookmaker, yeah, the bookmaker, you don't think the bookmaker is not worth their salt if they're not willing to take the same bet from a sharp than they, they are from a retail customer. Yes. Is that right? Yes. So how does that correlate with the comments from like uh, that come out? Like <clears throat> these may be taken out of context, so take it as it is. The comment from like Jason Robbins that gets retweeted all the time. You know, we're about entertainment. We're not about people coming here to win. It's like the opposite, right? Yeah. Well, I think it, it's a. It's just sort of a. It's just a lame way to do it. I think it's lame. I think I'm. I'm overusing that word lame, but I think it's like I don't think it's unethical, and I don't think there's anything wrong with entertainment. And you know, I like going on a flume ride and 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 goofing off and <laughs> you know laughing at clowns, all that kind of like entertainment's good. Uh, but you know, underlying the sports betting industry is a financial transaction, whether people see it as a financial transaction or not. It is. Like, you know, if I ran a movie theater chain, I wouldn't unnecessarily be trying to make people pay more for the ticket than is fair value. You know, it's still entertainment. Like if if I could find, I mean, maybe, maybe they would, and this is a horrible example, but, you know, I would still be trying to find the right price for my customers for the product I was offering. Um, sports betting has no inventory. It has no warehouses. It has no supply chain. It has none of that. The marginal cost. I've also heard it has it has no inherent value. <laughs> it's a, it's a it's a it's a paper trade. You know, it's basically a database transaction, right? Yep. So, uh, you know, it's a it's a trade uh, that that a few numbers in a database change, and that and that's the essence of what a sports bet is. So, I don't think that there's anything wrong with talking about sports betting being entertainment, and I don't think there's anything wrong with uh, treating it like entertainment, but I think the right way to do this industry is to focus on price and focus on the experience. And I think it's just, it's just, it's just missing the main thing. Well, I mean, that's, that's why exchanges are so exciting is because you can get to that more, call it more perfect model, right? You can bring down pricing, you can allow all types of betters to engage and you can enable the more efficient transfer of liquidity and rights and wrongs in decision making across an exchange than you can technically straight across a sports book, right? But the reason I think globally sports books, traditional bookmaking gets more liquidity in the world is because those bookmakers, much like in the poker sense, are capturing a large amount of the retail sports betters, a large amount of the global liquidity. And so the guys who normally and the girls who normally would go to an exchange to capture liquidity, they have to find a way into the retail market to get more of their right calls into the into the market. And that's where the kind of cat and mouse game comes sometimes between. You're talking about the sharps and the pros and, and less sharp bookmakers. Yeah, well, I think if bookmakers yeah, were, were right. I think if bookmakers, um, you know, sports books uh, were doing their job properly, that would be uh, that wouldn't be necessary because they'd be pricing things equitably, and you know, you wouldn't have to do the cat and mouse game. The other thing I don't understand, uh, and maybe an American pro sports better can explain this to me. I don't understand if you're a professional better why you would bet in this country. I don't, I don't understand why you wouldn't move to. I mean, at some point there'll be exchanges in the US, but I don't know why you wouldn't set up in the UK where you have access to exchanges and you can place proper bets with one account. You don't have to pay runners to go around Vegas and all that kind of stuff. Do you have an answer to that? Like why, why are they in the US? 
<laughs> I think I think we could certainly say. <clears throat> excuse me. I think we could certainly say that professional sports bettors are in the U.S. now because they can win at a higher rate against the current operators that are here. But if they right. have an edge, if they have an edge, which presumably they do, uh, couldn't they exploit that edge on the exchanges in the UK? I, 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 think it's, I think it's the opposite, right? Inefficient markets as opposed to an efficient UK market. If the market is inefficient, you can exploit it for larger wins than you could in an efficient one. No, I, I, I buy that premise, but you know, if you if you if you if you're a baseball guy, you know, like the, I guess there's smaller liquidity, I guess, in, in some of the exchanges and, and that that, that, that could be part of it. But I would think that you could you know, and when when I was a trader, you call it working your order. So like let's say you want to put a hundred grand down on the baseball game, you wouldn't just go to an exchange and place a buy order for a hundred grand, you'd buy a thousand, 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 thousand and work the order. Um, uh, in my opinion, you know, if I were a pro, that's what I would do, you know, because I'm not limited, you know, I don't have to go pay people with cash to go run around these sports books and do all that kind of stuff or, or try to play these games by using my friend's account and all that kind of stuff. Um, but, but maybe, maybe the inefficiency is greater in, in the U S market, which is, which makes it worth it worthwhile. Going back to, well, the, I think the, the, the inefficiency and also the marketing dollars and the promos you get. Yeah. You know, we basically have like promo teams running around. Going back to your your comment on Jason and DraftKings, um, you know, I don't have any inside information how they do price things, but you know, they're in the transition from Canby to SB Tech. I, I think in some cases they've gone line with, with SB Tech, but I imagine you know, like like uh, the way DraftKings has built its business is basically took an off the shelf sports book with off the shelf risk people. You know, Canby runs a big office that does risk. I assume. Uh, I know for the fact that SB Tech does the same thing. When you have that kind of that very clunky, off the shelf B two B kind of approach, you don't have the skill set and that DNA that I was talking about to be pricing these markets appropriately. So I think that even beyond the philosophy of what he's trying to say of like entertainment is our what we hang our hat on, I don't think he has the product or the technical back end to offer what I'm suggesting, which is that you would be able to underwrite a sharp the same you would underwrite a normal sports better no that that's a good question right there's this theory that as technology gets better in pricing events that it will converge and in some ways eventually surpass what i would call as like the traditional bookmaker the you know the risk desk right um in, in different countries terms so do you, do you think that happens? Like, because I th I think there's still this curve between bookmakers from the U.S. or who have dealt in the U.S. for a very long time and their understanding in terms of booking U.S. sports versus kind of the two models you just described, this automated, blocky trading model that trades more around dollars coming in as a as a, I guess, a number value, as opposed to like the person who's placing those dollars on for bet. Well, so, I, I think what I'm suggesting is that what we did at, 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 uh, at, 
at SmartKids was we built an automated market making software platform that basically says we're willing to buy this amount of money at this price. Well, we're going to buy this much, this price, we're going to sell this much. And on a sportsbook and on an exchange, we offer that, that same amount and that same price to everybody. But the whole industry, and, and it's generally very low margin and, and oftentimes has the best price in the world. Now, what other bookmakers do, which you know, uh, but maybe all the listeners don't know, is they will have what's called a stake factor. At least they call it a stake factor in the UK, where if you're winning better, if you win too much, they'll set they'll limit the amount that you can bet on that. And I think that I think sports books have built that in because I don't think that they have enough confidence in their models or their business business isn't capital efficient enough to be offering tighter prices to. Uh, the general public and the same amount of stake to all kinds of users. I mean, that's interesting. And maybe that's my bias. I grew up in the, in the world of stake factoring or, you know, booking to the player is another way to describe it. Right. To me, it's insane. It's insane that the industry, you know, and I get the tradition of it, um, but it's, it's an insane tradition. I think it's, I think it should be thrown out the window and, uh, you know, it's just such an old-fashioned kind of way to view the customer, I think. I, I mean, I, I, I guess in the purest sense, right, if you do believe that your modeling and you're able to price is correct, then you technically should take as much risk as you want. And you shouldn't discriminate between mm-hmm. or differentiate between the types of betters because you're saying my price for this market is the right price. Mm-hmm. And whether you are a shark or whether you're not, I'm in the, I, I think this is correct. And then once you take in that information, you start taking the bets, you start moving the pricing around based on the bets you're taking, of course, mm-hmm. right? Cause it changes the, the price, like the stock price. So I think in the pure sense, that's correct. But then like, if, if that's true, then like, why does almost no one in the world do that? They don't have the skills. But how many people have the skills to do that? Right. So like a couple companies, I guess that's like, I, yeah, there's like it's very few people who approach it that way, right? Yeah, for sure. But this is where I th- this is you know go, trying to tie this back to the the micro event world, you know, trying to add add more products to the thing. To me, this is these are the core problems in the sports betting industry. So the like I think the industry needs to build these tools. I think the industry really needs to lean into that as a problem and less around the edges. Well, yeah, I mean, this is fundamental to the entire industry. This is basically like, you know, this is that convergence of call it old school bookmaking and you book to the person and you try and figure out, you know, do I want your money or do I not want your money? Mm. Or do I want your information? Do I not want your information through taking bets versus like pure pricing on a highly liquid market and the interactions driving the change in pricing. Mm. I, and, and it probably gets to the fact that most of this liquidity is siloed and siloed liquidity drives conservatism around risk-taking on books, on, yeah. on pricing. That's another area that, that, that's that probably part of it. the industry is so lagging. The, the, the silo, you know, like the, all the people pricing all these sports books separately, very manually, very, you know, using disparate tools. That, that's also, I think, something that will be uh, changing over time. How do you answer the question then that when someone says, my price is correct, how does that person answer that question to prove their pricing is correct? They trade it. As part of what we're saying here is that there's, well, that's taking a position of confidence. Yeah. But how do you, 
how do you establish that price number one that I'm opening the market at is correct at that point in time? Well, you don't know. Maybe it's not. You don't know. Everything's a Gaussian distribution. So you're just basically trying to guess. Uh, you're trying to guess as good as you can. And then and then you run Monte Carlo simulations and you look at your P&L and make adjustments. But you never know if the, the price is right. You know, Tiger Woods could be 20%, could be 30%, could be 0%, could be, well, not 0%, but... You know, you never, you never have a hundred percent confidence in the price. Uh, you know, the famous saying, the only, um, hundred percent is death and taxes. So <laughs> if you take, uh, if you go take that to sports betting, you never know what the right probability is. The art is trying to guess as good as you can. And the more uncertain you are, the more you should back off your price. So the, the tightness of the margin should be a function of your conviction at the price. But at a 5% margin, so basically, uh, I, I did a bunch of Monte Carlo. At the 5% margin, I could be, I could be wrong all day long. Sorry to interrupt. You, yeah, right? that's exactly what I was going to say. If you do a Monte Carlo simulation, I was playing around with this with, uh, with one of our guys internally, and I was playing with theoretical edges on a sports bet. And basically, uh, for those of you that don't know, a Monte Carlo simulation is basically where you simulate one event and you mark that, um, and then you put it into a, you graph it and then you'll get a bell curve that comes out of it. And then that gives you a, an estimation of if this event happens, this is what the range of outcomes looks like. And it's a really important tool in probability and lots of areas of science and, and engineering. And the thing I noticed was that below 4% edge, you can lose money very, very easily. Like you can simulate a thousand events. You know, if I have a 2% edge and I have a thousand events, I forget what the number is, but I'm going to have a negative P&L 20, 30% of the time, even if I'm correct, mm -hmm. right? And the magic number was 4%. So above 4%, you know, if you had enough events, above 4%, you could almost not lose money. So if you think that the American sports book starts at 5.5% edge, um, like you, uh, they can't lose. They can't lose. So why are they faffing with, Stake factors. It's your five and a half. I usually say four and a half. I know. We Whatever. I mean, I might, times, I might right? be off, but you, you I, mean, you mean the, you mean the minus one ten pricing. No, I'm right? talking about like the, the, that for every the inherent margin, the inherent margin. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. For every hundred dollars, yeah, yeah. how yeah. much is yeah. taken away from the bid offer spread? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, the example I usually use is like the, like a normal football bet, like minus one ten to win a hundred. Right, so two sports bettors in an even market, both bet 110. You got 220 in the pool. The book keeps 10 and pays out 210. Your original bet plus 100 bucks. That gets you to like in the normal example I use, like, but same difference, right? Whether it's four and a half, five and a half, six and a half. And, and, and you're right. So like even in the early days of the market, like there was a lot of um, chatter around what what if you're from the bookmaking world, you would call it mispricing. But the fact that you know the sports books who were starting a new or launching for the first time ever on a on a baseball game or on a football game instead of like the kind of traditional minus 110 we'll call it they would charge you like minus 120 minus 130 minus 140 minus 150 and and when you're charging that it, it, it you know you're charging that margin that's the cost of the good the cost of the transaction you could be wrong all the time yeah and it's totally irrelevant you don't have to know us sports as long as you're charging that kind of a margin. Mm.
I think I, I always thought that was fascinating. And to your point, as it, you know, it, it suffice to say, have the people running risk using people in, in the broad sense, but have these have these teams or this technology, if you're not using a team, in the last two and a half, three years, gotten smart enough to be able to go from minus 150 to call it the, the four and a half to five and a half percent edge on the bookmaker side, at least get it down to call it normalized pricing, or are we still floating in this like, I don't know what I'm doing yet, so let me just charge more for the product? Well, I think I know which which, which one I think. Uh, <laughs> but, but, but let me get back to this, like, you know, on the Monte Carlo simulations, right? This is what I wanted to ask you. So you got to put up a price at some point. Yeah. And that price you put up on an event is usually, in most cases, before the event has started. Yeah. So are we saying then that that initial price before we can take in data on the outcome of what is actually occurring is our best guesstimation of whether it's accurate or not? There's there's tons of different ways to do it. I mean, like one theoretical way to think about it is everything has a chance between zero and a hundred percent. So if you have no idea, I'm, I'm making numbers up, but like take a random event, you could say, I, I have no idea. I will buy at 1% and sell at 99%. Now, in some cases that might be a bad bet. Like if we're going to bet on is tomorrow X day, you know, like you don't want to take a bet at those prices. But um, if you take, you know, are the Phillies going to win tomorrow? You could start at, I'll buy 1%, 99%. And then as your confidence increases, then you can bring those, the, it's called the bid offer spread. You can narrow your bid offer spread. Um, that's one way to do it. Another way to do it is sort of more random price discovery. It's called price discovery when you don't really know what's going on and you want to use sort of a market-driven mechanism. You basically just put up a random price with small stakes and see what happens in the market. That's another way to do it. So, uh, you know, I think eBay, right. you know, if you look at some auctions, that's kind of another way people uh, try to do price discovery is just you have random prices um, and, and see that. But I think in most cases what happens is uh, sports books will have a model of what they think the chance of the uh, team winning or losing is, and then build a price around that. But is, isn't that effectively a stake factoring? So let's say you're not a confident in your opening price, but you know that this sports better is better at you than uh, at pricing NCAA football. Well, what I'm saying, well, so I put up a price. Yeah. To me, stake factoring isn't that, isn't that kind of like the price discovery. To me, stake factoring is arbitrarily offering user A more than user B because of you think uh, user A is a less good, better, right? Is that is that your version of stake factoring? To right. me, it's more about like saying that the right the the right way to do this, in my opinion, is that you would offer each better a hundred bucks. Any better can bet a hundred bucks at this price. I'm uncertain. I'm not going to go more over that. And it, ir irrespective of the skill set of that better. Now, a good book, okay. a good sports book would use the normal better versus a smart money better to change their pricing models. So, if, you know, smart better is buying a hundred and, you know, like you might want to move the price, but also, you know, the cat and mouse game begins where, you know, smart better will know that. So maybe they want to move the price in their favor and will buy and all that kind of stuff. But I, I, you know, not to repeat myself, but I think sports better sports books should be offering the same bet to everybody. Yeah, yeah, I, and I guess maybe it's it, maybe it's it's just a part of the 
um, in some ways, the lack of information or the constantly evolving information in sports betting where you still factor players up and down based on their relative experience and knowledge, right? So the risk of loss of a $100 bet from a smart sports better versus a uh, kind of retail entertainment better, there's, there are two different types of bets, right, effectively. Yeah. A $100 retail bet is kind of a, uh, you know, it's called a shot in the dark. A $100 smart bet, the risk of loss associated to the book with taking $100 is higher. And so you have to put a higher value on the information or the $100 that comes in. And so I guess, I guess maybe there's two different points here, I guess, on the stake factoring, right? One is offering to the market the same price, the same market, because I'm confident in my pricing. And, and I, I was thinking more of the the value of the information flowing in from the person placing that bet and how that influences your pricing. Although you may have started off here, this person comes in, you might want to move move in a correlated fashion along with where they're directionally moving. Now, that's not to say that at all times these systems work like that, right? So sometimes the the factoring and the management of the player side doesn't always then translate into the pricing of the product. It should. In most cases, it should, but sometimes it doesn't, right? And so maybe that's just to the egalitarian notion of everyone should get the same price and we should have this broad liquid market. I think we have a lot of silos of data, silos of liquidity, imperfect information, and these four or five pieces are driving towards this more call it personalized approach to the sports betting markets. Mm. Yeah, I, I totally, I think that's an accurate description of the way things are right now. It's, it's just, you know, if you think about most financial trading, it's very rare that you know who you're trading against. You know, it's kind of a quirk of sports betting. I'm sure there's some financial markets, you know, especially like over-the-counter markets where you actually know your counterparty, but it's very rare. You know, if you think of trading on stocks, you have no idea if you're trading against uh, Grandma or Goldman Sachs, uh, whoever's on that side of the trade. So, it's very, yeah, it's unusual, and I think it's, I think it's a very cheap shortcut for for sports books to be over over relying on counterparties. Now, I think they should use that information to help them trim their prices and move their prices around and stuff like that. But I think if they're going to put a print up on the screen, um, I think they should offer the same amount to to all customers at the same time. So, well, this was fun. This was this is a little bit different than a bio interview. A little bit spicier. Well, you know, kind of, kind of, maybe. Um, yeah, I mean, the last one was a very long historical recap. But I think what's interesting is that, like, you know, we've been we've been chipping away at this for over a decade, mm. and to see the growth in the last twelve to eighteen years, you know, as 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 um, historical as the last conversation was, I think it's kind of interesting to put some of these things in context, right? Yeah, and I'm sure and, there's more spicy stuff too. Yeah, and and I I know you know I said some controversial <laughs> stuff that I, I'm sure some people are going to have some pushback on that, which is awesome. And you know I want to get you know I want to get guests to come on here and and have different debates in the industry because you know in many cases it just feels like same old same old. Like even you know like the fanatics thing is kind of like okay, go buy bookmaker and slap your logo on the top. I re I really want to. I think for such a big industry, it really deserves, uh, you know, like there's so much you can do with sports betting. And, and I think, I think, you know, there's nothing wrong with tradition and honoring tradition, but I think the, the industry would do well to uh, try to shake off tradition and do it the right way. The question is like, how do you do it? Right. So technically most of these markets where you Boldly have an exchange, exchange like products. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> <laughs>
There's, there's, there's got to be way. There's got to be ways to break it. Yeah, but, uh, we'll, we'll see. I mean, at least some of the regulators are being more aggressive on forward thinking on bringing new stuff into the marketplace. Mm. Yeah. Awesome, Quentin. Well, well, I had a lot of fun. Thanks yeah. very much. I hope the listeners right. enjoyed this, and uh, we will catch you all very soon. Thank you very much. All right. Sounds good. See ya. Thank you.